Chapter 8 William Grimshaw, The Ministry The religious condition of England in the eighteenth century was so deplorably bad that a man like William Grimshaw was not likely to confine his labours to his own parish. Led by the force of circumstances, he soon began to preach outside his parish boundaries, and finally did the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4, 5, throughout the whole region within fifty miles of Haworth. The circumstances that led Grimshaw into this course of action are easily explained. Hundreds of his regular hearers at Haworth were not his parishioners, but came together from distant places. Once they had been taught of God to know the value of the gospel, they went out of their own parishes to get the spiritual food that they could not find at home. It was only natural that these people would be concerned about their families and neighbors and desire for them to hear what had done good to themselves. They asked Grimshaw to come and preach at their houses, telling him about all the ignorance and spiritual destitution of the people around their own homes. They pleaded with him to come and tell their friends and relatives the same things he was telling his congregation every week at Haworth. They told him that souls were perishing for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6, unshepherded, uncared for, and untaught, and they promised him a warm welcome if he would leave his parish boundaries and help them. Appeals like these, we can well believe, were not made in vain. These extra parochial labors soon became a regular and systematic part of Grimshaw's life. The voice of the incumbent of Haworth was soon heard in many other places beside his parish church and for many years he was known throughout Yorkshire, Lancashire, Cheshire, and North Derbyshire as the apostle and preacher of the district. It would be interesting to name all the places that Grimshaw was in the habit of visiting as an evangelist, but it's impossible to do so. No accurate record remains of the extent of his labors, and he left no journal behind him. It is known, however, that in Yorkshire he used to preach at Leeds, Halifax, Bradford, Manningham, Todd Morden, Burstall, Caechley, Otley, Bingley, Bramley, Heppenstall, Luddenden, and Osmotherley. In Lancashire, he used to visit Manchester, Bolton, Rochdale, Colne, Paddyham, Holm, Backop, and Rossendale. In Cheshire, we find him at Stockport, Tarvin, and Rosthern. In Derbyshire, he preached at Mellor. These places are probably not a tenth part of those he visited, but they are places specifically mentioned by his biographers. In all these places, the people who valued such preaching as Grimshaw's were joined together in societies and were generally under the direction of one man. The clergyman of a large parish like Haworth could, of course, only leave his own work for a short time, visiting distant preaching stations at long intervals. Between his visits, the societies were necessarily left very much to themselves and their local leaders. Conference with these leaders, receiving reports from them of the spiritual condition of the societies, and arranging with them for breaking up new ground as well as keeping old ground in cultivation, made no small part of Grimshaw's extra parochial work. The provision of rooms, barns, or convenient fields for preaching, as well as the collection of money to defray expenses, was left to these leaders of the groups. Thus, when Grimshaw of Haworth or some like-minded friend paid his periodic visit, he had nothing to do except to preach. 
The managers or leaders of these societies that were scattered about Yorkshire, Lancashire, and Cheshire were seldom above the middle class, and they were usually as uneducated as the typical small farmers. There's no evidence that Grimshaw's ministry ever had much effect upon the upper class, or indeed was ever brought to deal with them. No one but an ignorant person, though, will ever think worse of it because of that. To get hold of the lower middle and lower classes of society and enlist them in the service of Christ is at this day one of the greatest problems the churches have to solve. If Grimshaw succeeded in doing this, it is enough to prove that he was no common man. A church is never in so healthy a state as it is when the common people hear gladly. Mark 12, 37 Let the following extract from R. Spence Hardy's biography of Grimshaw supply an example of the sort of people that Grimshaw got hold of in his itinerant labours outside his own parish. At Booth Bank in the parish of Rostburn, Cheshire, Grimshaw's services used to be held in the house of John and Alice Cross. Alice was a woman of great spirituality and courage, and she was a heroine in Christ's service. Her husband was a quiet, sincere man, but for some time after her conversion he remained in his old ways. When going out to worship with her straw hat in one hand and a door latch in the other, she would say to him, John Cross, will you go to heaven with me? If you will not, I am determined not to go to hell with you. John yielded at last. A pulpit was set up in the largest room of their house at Rosthern, and the messengers of God were made welcome to their food and farm. When beggars came to the door, she told them of the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Kneeling by their side, she commended them to the grace of God, and then sent them away grateful for her charity and impressed by her earnestness in seeking their soul's good. Nor were the more honorable of the land beyond the reach of her reproofs. On one occasion she stopped the Cheshire hunt as it was passing by her house, and she addressed the horsemen, especially Lord Stamford and Sir Harry Mainwaring, who listened to her warning and rode on. These were the types of households that William Grimshaw used to make the center of operation in his extra-parochial evangelism. These were the types of people who valued his labors, welcomed his visits, and proved the value of his preaching in the district within fifty miles of Haworth. Undoubtedly, these extra-parochial labors of Grimshaw will appear wrong to many people today. Many are such excessive lovers of church order that they feel scandalized at the idea of a minister preaching in other men's parishes. Such people would do well to remember the condition of England in Grimshaw's times. There were dozens and hundreds of parishes all over the north of England in which there was no resident clergyman, and the services of the church, even when performed, were cold, brief, and completely unprofitable. To tell us that Grimshaw should have left the inhabitants of these parishes to perish in ignorance rather than commit a breach of parochial order is simply ridiculous. People might as well tell us that we must not knock at a person's door and awaken him when his house is on fire because we are not acquainted with him. The parochial or parish system of the Church of England was designed for the good of people's souls. It was never intended to ruin souls by cutting them off from the sound of the gospel. The thing that is really astonishing in the history of Grimshaw's extra-parochial labors is the non-interference of ecclesiastical authorities. 
How William Grimshaw could have gone on for fifteen or twenty years preaching all over Lancashire, Yorkshire, and Cheshire without being stopped by bishops and archdeacons is very hard to understand. Let us charitably hope that many secretly felt in their hearts that some such evangelism as his was absolutely needed. The enormous size of such parishes as Bradford and Halifax in Yorkshire, as Whalley, Rochdale, and Prestwich in Lancashire, and as Stockport, Astbury, and Prestbury in Cheshire, made it absolutely impossible for the clergymen of the main parish churches to provide means of grace for their parishioners. We can well believe that to stop such labors as Grimshaw's in these large parishes would have been so unwise that even bishops and archdeacons of the eighteenth century refrained from attempting it. Whatever the reason, it's a most curious fact that Grimshaw was never completely stopped from his extra-parochial ministry. The hand of the Lord was with him, and he carried on his itinerant work as well as his regular services at Haworth up to his death. Although Grimshaw was never actually stopped, we mustn't suppose that he escaped persecution. The prince of this world will never willingly part with any of his subjects. He will stir up opposition against anyone who tries to pull down his kingdom. The minister of Haworth often faced abuse and personal violence of a kind that we can hardly imagine in the present day. Mad Grimshaw was the name given to him by many throughout the district in which he labored. None opposed him more than some of the clergy. With the true dog-in-the-manger spirit, they neither did good themselves nor liked anyone else to do it for them. The most violent of Grimshaw's opponents was the Reverend George White, long-time minister of Colne and Marsden in Lancashire. This clergyman began his attack by publishing a sermon against the Methodists, preached at his two churches in August 1748. In this sermon he accused William Grimshaw and all his fellow laborers in the following way. They are authors of confusion, open destroyers of the public peace, flying in the face of the very church they shrewdly pretend to follow, occasioning many bold insurrections that threaten our spiritual government, schismatic rebels against the best of churches, authors of a further breach in our unhappy divisions, despisers of the great command, Six days shall you labor, despisers of all laws, civil and ecclesiastical, professed disrespectful of learning and education, causing a visible ruin of trade and industry, and, in short, promoters of a shameful progress of excitement and confusion not to be paralleled in any other Christian dominion. Not content with preaching this absurdity, White proceeded to stir up a mob to stop the preaching of Grimshaw and his companions by force and violence. He actually issued a proclamation in order to gather a mob in the following words. Notice is hereby given that if any men are inclined to enlist into His Majesty's service under the command of the Reverend George White, Commander-in-Chief, and John Bannister, Lieutenant-General of His Majesty's forces, for the defence of the Church of England and the support of the trades in and about Colne, both which are now in danger, let them now rally to the cross, when each man shall have a pint of ale for advance and other proper encouragements. The consequence of this outrageous proclamation was just what might have been expected. Lewd fellows of the baser sort, Acts 17.5, are always ready to make a riot against religion, just as they were in the days of Paul. 
when William Grimshaw and John Wesley went to Colne to preach on August 24, 1748, they were attacked by an overwhelming mob of drunken people armed with clubs, and were dragged before White like thieves and criminals. After a futile attempt to coerce a promise from them that they would refrain from coming to preach at Colne, they were allowed to leave the house. However, as soon as they got outside, the mob closed in upon them and tossed them around with much violence, throwing Grimshaw down and covering both of them with mire, there being no one to come to their rescue. The people who had assembled to hear the word of God were treated with even greater cruelty. They had to run for their lives amid showers of dirt and stones, and no regard was paid to either gender or age. Some were trampled in the mire, others were dragged by the hair, and many were unmercifully beaten with clubs. One person was forced to leap from a rock ten or twelve feet high into the river to prevent being thrown in headlong. When he crawled out, wet and bruised, they swore they would throw him in again and were with difficulty prevented from executing their threat. White, well pleased, was watching his mad followers all this time without a word to stop them. None of these things moved the lion-hearted minister of Howarth. Not long afterward, he went to Colne again, and was again shamefully treated, pelted with mud and dirt, and dragged violently along the road. In the following year, 1749, he published a long reply to White's sermon extending to eighty-six pages, in which he powerfully and triumphantly refuted White's charges. Persecution of this rough kind was not the only difficulty that Grimshaw had to undergo in consequence of his extra-parochial evangelism. He was more than once called to account for his conduct by the Archbishop of York, yet seems to have escaped suspension or punishment in a most amazing manner. On one occasion, he was accused of having preached in a licensed meeting house at Leeds. If proof had been brought to substantiate the charge, he would have been dismissed from his duties for his crime. Although no act of wrongdoing was proved, he was required to promise the archbishop that he would not preach in any place that had been licensed for the worship of dissenters, although he repeated his determination to continue preaching in the surrounding areas as long as there were souls for whom no one seemed to care. On another occasion, when accused of preaching out of his own parish, he was asked by the archbishop how many communicants he had when he first came to Howarth. He answered, Twelve, my lord. How many do you have now? was the next question. The reply was, In the winter from three to four hundred, and in the summer close to twelve hundred. On hearing this, the archbishop expressed his approval, and said, We cannot find fault with Mr. Grimshaw when he is instrumental in bringing so many people to the Lord's table. On another occasion, when a complaint was made to the archbishop accusing him of wandering and intruding into other men's folds, the archbishop announced his intention to hold a confirmation service in Mr. Grimshaw's church, and to have an interview with him on the occasion. On the day appointed, they met in Howarth Vestry, and while the clergy and laity were assembling in great numbers, the following conversation took place. I have heard, said the Archbishop, many extraordinary reports regarding your conduct, Mr. Grimshaw. It has been stated to me that you not only preach in private houses in your parish, but you also travel up and down and preach wherever you want to, without consulting your bishop or the clergy into whose parishes you intrude your labours. 
I have also heard that your discourses are very random, and that in fact you can and do preach about anything. So that I will be able to judge for myself, both of your doctrine and manner of stating it, I give you notice that I will expect you to preach before me and the clergy present two hours from now, and from the text that I am about to name. After repeating the text, the Archbishop added, Sir, you may now go and make whatever preparation you can while I confirm the young people. My lord, said Grimshaw, looking out of the vestry door into the church, see what multitudes of people are here. Why should the order of the service be reversed and the congregation kept out of the sermon for two hours? Send a clergyman to read prayers, and I will begin immediately. After prayers, Mr. Grimshaw ascended the pulpit and began an extemporaneous prayer for the archbishop, the people, and the young people about to be confirmed, and he wrestled with God for his assistance and blessing until the congregation, the clergy, and the archbishop himself were moved to tears. After the service was over, the clergy gathered around the archbishop to learn what actions he intended to take in order to restrain the preacher from such imprudent and extemporaneous expositions of God's Word. To their surprise, the archbishop took Mr. Grimshaw by the hand, and said with a quivering voice, I would to God (laughs) that all the clergy in my diocese were like this good man. Mr. Grimshaw afterward remarked to a group of friends who came to take tea with him that evening, I did expect to be turned out of my parish on this occasion, but if I had been, I would have joined my friend John Wesley, taken my saddlebags, and gone to one of his poorest circuits. It's impossible to turn from this part of Grimshaw's history without feelings of righteous indignation. There is something revolting in the idea of a holy and zealous minister of the Church of England being persecuted for overstepping the bounds of ecclesiastical etiquette, while hundreds of clergymen whose lives and doctrine were beneath contempt were left alone and undisturbed. All over England, country livings were often filled by hunting, shooting, gambling, drinking, card-playing, swearing, ignorant clergymen who cared neither for law nor gospel, and who utterly neglected their parishes. When they did preach, they either preached to empty benches, or else the hungry sheep looked up and were not fed. Yet these men lived under their own vines and fig trees, enjoying great quietness. Micah 4, 4, Zechariah 3, 10. Untouched by bishops, eating the fat of the land, and calling themselves the true supporters of the church. However, the moment a man like William Grimshaw rose up, who gloried in the articles, the homilies, and the liturgy, and preached the gospel, he was treated like a felon and a criminal, and his name was denounced as evil. Truly, God's patience with the Church of England a hundred years ago was something astonishing. It is astonishing that He didn't remove our candlestick completely. It is astonishing that He granted her such a revival and raised up so many burning and shining lights among her ministers. To talk of Grimshaw being no churchman and being an enemy to the Church of England is preposterous and absurd. If attachment to the standards and forms of his own communion is a mark of churchmanship, he was a churchman, one dedicated to the Church of England, in the truest sense. 
No doubt he loved all who loved Jesus Christ in sincerity. No doubt he made nothing of parish boundaries when souls were perishing and other clergymen neglected their duties. But to the day of his death he was a steady adherent of the church in which he had been ordained, used her services devoutly and regularly, and did more for her real interests than any clergyman in the north of England. One of his biographers specifically mentions that he greatly admired the homilies and regarded their disuse and neglect of the thirty-nine articles as the chief occasion of all the mischief to the church, believing it probable that if they had been constantly read, Methodism would never have appeared. He said once that an old clergyman of his acquaintance, being asked by his minister if he could read the homilies in the pulpit, answered, No, for if you should do so, the whole congregation would turn Methodists. On another occasion, he wrote the following remarkable words to Charles Wesley I see nothing so materially amiss in the liturgy or the church constitution as to disturb my conscience or justify my separation. No, where will I go to mend myself? I believe the Church of England to be the soundest, purest, and most apostolic national Christian church in the world. Therefore, I can in good conscience, as I am determined, God willing, to do, live and die in her. Yet this is the man who some dare to tell us was no churchman? Grimshaw's holy and useful career was brought to an end on April 7, 1763. He died in his own house at Haworth of a putrid fever in the fifty-fifth year of his age and the twenty-first of his ministry at Haworth. The fever of which he died had been raging in his parish from the beginning of the year, and had proved fatal to many of the inhabitants. On its first breaking out, says Hardy, he had a feeling that it would prove fatal to some member of his family, and had exhorted all to be ready. When visiting a parishioner, he caught the prevailing epidemic, and at once predicted that he would not recover. To the physician who attended him, he expressed in strong terms the humiliating feelings he had on a retrospect of his whole life, and how disproportionate, defective, and defiled his best services had been, compared with the obligation under which he felt himself and the importance of the cause in which he had been engaged, and that he hoped, if the Lord should prolong his days and raise him up, to be much more active and diligent. To Reverend Ingham, his friend and brother in the gospel, he said, My last enemy has come. The signs of death are upon me, but I am not afraid. No, no, blessed be God, my hope is sure, and I am in His hands. Afterward, when Mr. Ingham prayed for the lengthening of his life that he might yet be useful to Christ's cause, Grimshaw said, Alas, what have my wretched services been? I have now need to cry at the end of my unprofitable course, God be merciful to me, a sinner. At another time, laying his hand on his heart, he said, I am quite exhausted, but I will soon be at home, forever with the Lord, a poor, miserable sinner redeemed by his precious blood. His valued fellow laborer, the Reverend Henry Venn, then vicar of Huddersfield, came over from Huddersfield to see him and asked him how he felt. He replied, Never had I such a visit from God since I first knew him. 
I am as happy as I can be on earth, and as sure of glory as if I were in it. After this, finding that his disease was particularly infectious and dangerous, he requested his friends to visit him as little as possible. His peace and hope are reported to have continued unshaken to the end. As he lived, so he died, rejoicing in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. By his own desire, he was buried by the side of his first wife in the chancel of Luddenden Church in the valley of the Calder, not far from Haworth. Like Joseph, he gave commandment concerning his bones. Hebrews 11:22. He had drawn up full and specific instructions about his funeral long before he became sick, and these instructions were carefully followed. The number of attendants was to be twenty pious or relative friends, or both. He wanted only a plain poor man's burial suit and a plain poor man's coffin of elm boards, with the words on it, To me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. All the way to the church, appropriate verses were to be sung, in various selected meters and tunes, out of the twenty-third, thirty-ninth, and ninety-first psalms, and also appropriate hymns. At least one of the attendants was to be a Methodist preacher, and he was to preach a funeral sermon from the text on his coffin, Philippians 1.21. The Methodist preacher selected for the occasion was his old friend and fellow laborer, Henry Venn. The church at London was too small to contain the immense congregation that assembled, so the preacher had to preach in the graveyard. Tradition reports, says Hardy, that Venn's voice rose like the swell of a full-toned bell as he told forth the virtues of his departed friend and exhorted the people to follow him as he had followed Christ. Never, indeed, had any man a more honorable burial. Like Stephen, devout men carried him to his grave and made great lamentation over him. Acts 8, 2. He had, as Venn well remarks, what is more ennobling than all the pomp of solemn funeral songs or of a royal funeral. He was followed to the tomb by a great multitude who beheld his corpse with affectionate sighs and many tears, and who still cannot hear his beloved name without weeping for the guide of their souls. Grimshaw was married twice, and twice was left a widower. His first wife was Sarah, daughter of John Lockwood of Eward Hall. She had been twice married before, first to William Sutcliffe of Skatecliffe Hall, and secondly to John Ramsden, both of whom died without children. Grimshaw was evidently greatly attached to his first wife, and her death on November 1, 1739, made a deep impression on him. His second wife was Elizabeth, daughter of Henry Cockcroft of Mayroyd. I can find no record of the date of her death. Grimshaw only had two children, a son and a daughter, both by his first wife. His daughter died when she was only twelve years old, while at school at Kingswood, near Bristol. Charles Wesley says that she departed in the Lord. His son John survived his father by only three years and died childless. During his father's lifetime he had been careless and intemperate, and was the cause of great grief. When he visited his father on his deathbed, Grimshaw told him to take care what he did, as he was not prepared to die. 
To him also he used the remarkable words that his body felt like a boiling vessel, but his soul was as happy as it could be made by God. John Grimshaw died at Eward on May 17, 1766, and by God's great mercy there was hope in his death. His father's dying words seemed to have sunk into his heart, and at any rate his father's many prayers for him were heard. After his father's death, John used to ride a horse that belonged to William, and one day, meeting an inhabitant of Haworth, the man remarked, I see you're riding the old parson's horse. Yes, was the reply. Once he carried a great saint, and now he carries a great sinner. Long before his death, young Grimshaw had given clear evidence of repentance unto salvation, and found pardon and peace in Christ. A little while before he died, he was heard to exclaim, What will my old father say when he sees I have got to heaven?